Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Paul. I am delighted to have you with me here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. This is the first time you and I have met. I don't know. We could probably do some uh, homework and figure out if we've been in the same room together. Uh, but uh, in this day and age when we can uh, we can make new friends and uh, create virtual coffee sh- coffee shop type settings here. I've got my coffee in hand. Maybe you do as well. Um, But I am delighted to have you here on the podcast with me today. Paul, before we dive into our conversation, we're going to talk about Jane Addams. We're going to take it in a particular direction. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that in the 300 plus conversations we've had, Jane Addams has not been a topic of conversation. So I'm delighted that I've found somebody who's a historian on on her. Uh, But before we do that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself? Jason, it's great to be with you. Uh, I'm Paul Pribonow, and I'm the uh, president of Augsburg University, which is in Minneapolis. Um, I'm in my 17th year there as president. And before that, I spent five years as president of Rockford College, now Rockford University uh, in Rockford, Illinois, which happens to be Jane Addams' alma mater. So I've got a particular connection to Jane Addams uh, because of that experience. Yeah. Before we dive into Jane Addams, can you sort of tell me, Paul, I mean, you, when I, when I did my homework on who Paul is, uh, you're a fundraising professional. Um, and, uh, so you've spent, you know, you're administrator at, uh, at the university level, uh, president of a college, uh, but 
I, I'm sort of I'm sort of ashamed to sort of say that I don't know in my 25 year fundraising history if Jane Adams has ever come up. I mean, she's not a she's not a character that we sort of talk about. I teach over at the local college, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, after you know, I've as the the time I've been spending getting to know Adams, um, I need to incorporate her more than you know Carnegie and a couple of these other fellas that tend to get all the spotlight in our conversations. She certainly offers a alternative vision, which I think may be more relevant than ever right now. So, yeah, so I am a fundraising professional. I, um, I was uh, a graduate student at the University of Chicago um, back in the late 70s and early 80s and was all but dissertation and then um, uh, felt that I had a calling to some administrative work. I had a friend who was in the fundraising office there who said, well, they've got these jobs here and, uh, you know, you could apply and you probably get a job in the annual fund office, which I did. Um, and uh, that was the beginning of a career that, uh, you know, directly in fundraising, which lasted about uh, 15 years, um, 20 years. And then I kind of followed that into the presidency. And so it's, uh, and it's, a, it's actually a part of the story because my discovery of Adams came while I was the associate dean at the School of Social Service Administration at the University of Chicago, which uh, was an institution that had been founded by some of Jane Adams' colleagues at Hull House uh, in Chicago in the late 1890s. Um, and so I got to know a little bit about Jade Adams there. And then actually I wrote a dissertation, and this is how it all comes together. I wrote a dissertation um, about the professions in America. And it just so happened that what I compared there was the profession of fundraising and the profession of social work. And so I brought Jane Adams into a dialogue with the, with what I knew about fundraising at that point as a as an emerging profession. And so uh, that that's the connection that uh, that I had to uh, you know, to Adams that has actually uh, transformed my vision of the work I do, uh, both as a president and as a fundraiser. Um, and I think offers us a really alternative way of thinking about the work, uh, both of uh, philanthropic organizations and of, of philanthropic fundraisers. And that's really the, uh, I know that's the, uh, of the lessons that you've gleaned from my essay that we're going to talk about. So, yeah, That's intriguing that you've, uh, because I have found myself in my own research um, arriving at the history of social work. Uh, Paul, one of the things that my listeners routinely hear me say is that I think that the fundraising profession is still in it in the midst of what I call its messy adolescence. It's, it's still a sort of a maturing profession. It's still trying to figure itself out. And I think at times when I've gone looking for perhaps a way to sort of build that case, I arrive at sort of this um, a, a number of authors, early 20th century authors who were, you know, writers, researchers um, who were answering that similar question about how a profession sort of evolves. Um, and, and, and social work was one of those places. Does that, does that sort of make sense? Exactly right. No. So Adams was one thread of, you know, of what became the social work profession. Um, I don't think she would have claimed herself as a social worker. She actually talked about herself as an educator. Um, but you have this man, Abraham Flexner, who in 1915 got up and made this proclamation about professions in America that really pretty much right. put the medical model in place, uh, the kind of expert, uh, you know, client, expert, um, uh, patient model in place. I, you know, I think over the decades, uh, professions evolved and um, they were always a, a bit of a tension between the kind of uh, expert techniques that people brought to the work, which, you know, certainly important, but also um a kind of a social contract that professionals had to the rest of society because we gave them this sort of status, you know, of folks that healed our bodies, that, uh, you know, fought for justice, you know, what you pick your profession. Um, and I think one of the challenges for fundraising, which I identified, I think it's similar to what you've said, is that in some ways we 
as we began to think of ourselves as a profession, uh, we that was the only model you know we knew. <laughs> we didn't have a we're not alternatives out there. And so I've, I'm a social ethicist by uh, by academic training. Um, and so when I came to this work, I wanted to find um, recover that moral um, kind of meaning, if you will, of professional work. And I uh, that was what my dissertation was about. And actually, specifically, I wanted to talk about um, the public service roles of professionals. Um, so my dissertation was actually entitled Public Service, Recovering the Moral Meaning of Professions in America. Um, and that was the lens then that I brought to my work um, in NSFRE, now the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Uh, you know, I'm the chair emeritus of the Research Council. I'm the chair emeritus of the Ethics Committee. <laughs> I basically have been involved in, you know, writing the code and trying to kind of remind people that um, this kind of transactional nature of the work, you know, really is, uh, uh, is doesn't lift up the kind of central role that philanthropy plays in our democracy. Uh, and that's really the, the kind of core message I've tried to bring um, you know, as a kind of crusader, if you will, a little bit, uh, you know, similar to what you've been trying to do, I think. And uh, I've done it from the inside, and I think I've made some impact. <laughs> but uh, uh, but there are still a lot of forces out there that kind of, you know, drag us back into that default model. So um, I think it's well worth uh, our continuing to promote this alternative vision of the work that we have. That we have the privilege to do as fundraisers. Let's start uh, before I before we sort of formally sort of begin to sort of deconstruct your essay, and, and I'm going to uh, refer to it a number of points here. I, th I think it's a very useful sort of outline for our conversation. But um, I, th I think in my research of Adams, Paul, um, to sort of reflect on the word philanthropy, I, I I seem to think that I have found that I don't know that philanthropy was a word that she would have routinely used. I think maybe I have even found an author, maybe it's Knight, who says that that philanthropy. If it was a word she used, she certainly gave it a different definition. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's a word that she used usually to critique it. Uh, you know, so yeah. if you think about, uh, you know, Andrew, Andrew Carnegie was writing uh, the responsibilities of wealth at the pretty much the same moment that Jane Adams was practicing her her vision of um, you know of what it means to serve the neighbor uh, in ways that um, were really about the responsibilities of being human is what I you know, say that she was really about. And, and again, it's not that she didn't benefit from uh, the gifts that others made, but she, she engaged, uh, you know, that, that donor in a way that, um, that really tried to undo the chasm that sometimes exists between those who um, have and those who need. Uh, and so I think that's really the, the point. And so I, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I think that um, Lucy Knight, who writes a lot about uh, Jane Addams in her book, Citizen, um, uh, which is a book, a biography of Jane Addams, um, uh, refers to what uh, Adams did as humane philanthropy. Um, so that was really the, she put a, a label on it that, again, whether Jane Addams herself used that uh, that language or not, I think that's, uh, that's the verbiage that we've come to use to describe her different way of thinking about philanthropy. And a little more context. Um, we'll, I, again, I, I and I'm working my way through Knight's book. It's a very for my listeners. Uh, it's a very very thick book. It's uh, that's why I have found your essay to be much more. Um, you know, I can get through it in a matter of a half, you know, fifteen twenty minutes. Um, but there's there's something in, in and I want to give you the benefit of sort of telling this story. But there's a sort of an identity crisis sort of going on early in because um, Jane Adams came from wealth. And she's and, and, and I think this is the story that, uh, you know, in a number of chapters that um, that Knight tells 
What, what, what was it that was going on before she founded? Help me understand what it is that she was going on sort of in her life and about her identity um, before she founded Hull House that perhaps gives some additional context for some of us to understand. Right. Yeah, so Jane Adams was born and grew up in a small town in uh, northern Illinois, north central Illinois, called Cedarville, um, Illinois, um, where the homestead is actually still there. She's actually buried there. Um, when she was growing up, uh, her mother died young uh, when she was young, and her father really uh, raised her. And her father was uh, very good friends with Abraham Lincoln. Um, so there's an f- important influence there. We're talking 1860s, you know, into the 1870s. Jane Adams uh, then goes to college at uh, what was at that point called Rockford Female Seminary, which was about, uh, you know, 45 minutes away from where she grew up. Um, it's not where she wanted to go, but it's where her father wanted her to go. So she did go there and had a good education. It was a women's college that was uh, actually a pretty distinguished place. And she had a uh, took a curricular interest throughout her time at uh, Rockford, actually in the heroic. Uh, it's a very interesting to look. You can actually analyze, uh, as Lucy Knight has, you can analyze the courses she took. Uh, so she, she had something going on. Again, she came from relative affluence, um, went to a private college, uh, kind of took this interest in uh, what it meant to be uh, heroic. Um, and uh, she actually wrote about that was her senior essay. Um, and then what happened is that she graduated and she went off to medical school. Um, but while she was in her first year of medical school, she actually uh, came uh, down with a medical health issue and uh, had to withdraw. And then she did what of uh, women that came, young women who came from relative affluence did. She traveled to Europe um, and she made two different trips during the 1880s to Europe. And while she was there in her second trip, she actually visited a place called Toynbee Hall, which is uh, the east end of London. And it's actually still there. Um, And it was the original settlement house um, founded by the Barnetts, a husband and wife, a couple who had uh, uh, ties to Oxford, uh, University of Oxford. And they went into a very uh, immigrant neighborhood, very troubled neighborhood, a difficult neighborhood, um, and settled into that neighborhood with a house that became the residence for folks uh, who had most of who graduated from Cambridge and Oxford, college educated, university educated, but they came to live in this neighborhood. Um, and the and the, the work of that settlement house, Toynbee Hall, was actually around trying to help that neighborhood become healthier, more just, respond to the needs of the neighbors. And the whole idea of the settlement house movement is that it it's not to go in and try to fix problems with your solutions, but it's actually to go in and, and engage with neighbors on how you can create something uh, that's good for everybody who's there. And so it's kind of a remarkable story. So she comes back from that trip to Europe and with a colleague, Ellen Gates star, she founds uh, Hall House uh, in 1889. Um, in the near west side of Chicago, and um, and that's where she settled into the hall. It was the, it was a mansion that had been uh, built by a fellow named Charles Hall, and she um, uh, settled in there, and then started to have others come and join her there. And over the course of the forty uh, some years that she lived there, she uh, bought more buildings. They bought more buildings, opened up all kinds of different activities that. Uh, Many of which we would recognize today as uh, you know really central. It was the first kindergarten in the country. Uh, uh, had lending libraries. She had the arts, theater, music. Uh, she had athletic uh, uh, you know activities for kids. Uh, just really a remarkable kind of story um, of how uh, a group of folks went into a neighborhood and said, "Okay, who are these neighbors, and what do they need, and what can we do together?" And that's really the kind of basis for um, for what became her life's work. Paul, you start your essay, uh, for my listeners, uh, we'll put a link so that you can find this essay, Common Work, Jane Adams, um, on Citizenship and Philanthropy. 
I'm curious to sort of know why you chose to start with this story, this idea of a, um, you sort of tell the story of a young businessman in Chicago in 1895 and he contributes, he, he finds Adams and he finds the whole house and he contributes. Um, but you describe, uh, and I'll let you sort of fill in some more of the details. You know, the story that you, you tell, um, you describe a different type of an engagement and a higher level of, I, I think about the word, you know, we, a lot, number of us in the fundraising community because of um, uh, the, the, the idea of proximity, you describe a, 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 a much more proximate sort of relationship engagement with between the, the benefactor and the beneficiary. Um, and it's not centered around the transaction and it's not centered around the idea of um, sort of elevating this, young wealthy gentleman's sort of posture in the world it's it's much more about bringing him closer to the to the people that he's um being a you know contributing to yeah why do you why do you choose to do that yeah well i'm a good uh, uh in addition to being a social ethicist i'm a theologian so i a good parable i always feel is a good way to start and that's the way i depict the story now whether very specific things happened just as I described or not. I, that wasn't the point. But what I wanted yeah. to be able to illustrate right at the beginning of this essay, because this essay is part of a larger collection of essays around the whole broader issues about philanthropy and, and both critiques of it as well as uh, different ways of thinking about it. So so I I knew that my audience uh, was somebody that needed to th you know, think about the, the actual practice of, of what it meant to be philanthropic, what it meant to be a fundraiser. And so I, um, I tell this parable about this young man who uh, gets knows Jane Adams through family connections and wants to contribute to her good work. So, you know, I mean, that's uh, makes good sense. I mean, she had to have uh, support for the work she was doing, but the parable talks about the fact that when he contacts Jane Adams about making this gift, she says to him, I won't take your gift unless you come here to the neighborhood and come into the living room of Hull House and sit with um, neighbors, those who live here, um, sit with uh, experts from the University of Chicago who are sociologists who know about urban affairs, you know, sit here with residents that, that live in this Hull House itself who care about our neighbors and, and listen to what they need. Um, let them tell their story so that, in fact, um, your gift then isn't something that uh, gets lobbed in, if you will, from your wealthy uh, suburb, but it actually, your gift comes right into the core of the life of this neighborhood. Um, you know, and I, I depict how that actually is an attempt to overcome, again, the chasm between the donor and the, the beneficiaries. Um, but it really is a larger set of uh, you know, kind of philosophy, if you will, of what Jane Adams was doing. She was saying, good, uh, you know, whether you're a donor, you're an expert, you don't come here and tell us what to do. You come and listen to what this neighborhood needs. Uh, and then let's find ways to be engaged. And I I continue the parable then and talking about how the young man then becomes involved because he's he actually has been drawn into the work. He actually uh, joins the board uh, of the Hull House. And so, you know, again, I think we'd recognize that when you do that right, you get an opportunity to get a much deeper engagement. Um, but it's really that broader framework of listening to our neighbors and understanding their needs before we um, just uh, kind of create that uh, gap, if you will, between the, those who have and those who need, uh, which is, I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, often a part of how fundraising and philanthropy gets depicted. Um, you know, you you hear the the jokes, you know, uh, from folks who say, "Well, here, you know, here comes the fundraiser. I better guard my wallet." You know, I mean, it's all you know, all these kind of stereotypes of what it means, as opposed to really seeing the work as what it means to be human together, uh, what it means to be in in community together. Um, 
uh, and to think about uh, the, the specific roles of, of everyone in that community uh, in furthering uh, the uh, response to the needs that people have, aspirations. Yeah. So. yeah, I really appreciate that. That's exactly where I was going to go. That quote from Knight's book, uh, the difference between the responsibilities of being human uh, versus the responsibilities of wealth. You know, Paul, you know, I highlighted that, and that's exactly where I wanted to go here at this particular point in the conversation. I'm wondering, is that in many ways part of sort of the overarching critique? When I think back on the the hundreds of conversations I've had here on the podcast, and because recently I've been beginning to think about sort of these underlying themes that sort of emerge from these unstructured conversations, and I'm thinking that there's this there's this desire amongst the you know the the fundraising community to have relationships that are more centered around the responsibilities of being human rather than the responsibilities of wealth. I mean, I just think that's, um, and, and I don't think Knight was writing about, uh, um, you know, <laughs> the fundraising profession and, and, uh, and, and Adams, Adam was, Adams wasn't concerned about, you know, the professionalization of fundraising. So I just, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I think it really goes again to how we understand professions, as we were you know, talking about earlier. I mean, it really is um, if if, uh, if if the role of philanthropy is seen as something that is simply transactional, then I mean, then that creates a power dynamic that, in fact, um, you know, that fundraisers get drawn into, and in particular because it's about money. I've also would argue, you know, because it's about money, that even makes it more complicated. Um, so, what does it mean to actually? Um, flip that script to say that um, what's most important are what we have in common. And then, um, you know, that leads to why we care about education, why we care about healthcare. Why, I mean, if you think about the, uh, the nonprofit sector in the United States, at least, I mean, you know, we've been given a privileged role because, you know, as a public, we've said it's important that people get educated, that they have good health care, that they have a good justice system. And all of these professions then grow out of those aspirations. Um, so, what can we say about fundraising that, in fact, responds to that same claim that, in fact, philanthropy, you know, understood in a, the broadest sense of loving humankind, which is what the word actually means uh, in English. Um, what does that look like uh, in not simply, again, as a uh, as a kind of economic engine, but in fact, as a um, uh, as a way of drawing together community, a way of uh, of actually lifting up democracy, I, which I argue actually uh, in the essay, you know, that it really comes back down to what it means to be a, a good citizen, um, and that's really the um, the kind of argument that I'm trying to make. Yeah, unravel that some more because at the bottom of uh, you know, at the just 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 below what I where I was where I was referring to, philanthropy properly understood was the work of citizenship. And part of my critique is I'm constantly sort of trying to unravel part of what, um, uh, to use the expression I use is sort of what, what lets us down about contemporary fundraising practices. And I'm oftentimes making the argument, Paul, that it's, it's much more care. It's, it's, we, we've, 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 we've sort of bet too much on PR and marketing and the assumption that the donor is a consumer. And so to, to read here, I mean, this, this is, you know, when, when I found this and this may have been what sort of the way I sort of found your work first and foremost was this idea that philanthropy properly understood as a work of citizenship. And there's other, there's other academics who have said the same thing that when we, when philanthropy and fundraising sort of gets tied up, with marketplace assumptions and therefore assumes that the donor is a consumer or a customer and, you know, gets all this sort of marketplace language that that's where it gets us in trouble um, is, is the idea that we're citizens. And, and I guess perhaps I'm interested in also hearing 
is part of our challenge where we're at today, Paul, that we need to start seeing ourselves both on either side of the gift exchange as citizens. I mean, I'm a citizen. If, if you're the donor and I'm the fundraiser, we're both citizens. So there's a common there's a common set of rights and responsibilities that you know we talk about the bill of bills of rights, you know, donor bill of rights, and the now we're talking about a fundraiser's bill of rights and those sorts of things. I'm thinking there's there's a set of rights and responsibilities that perhaps we share together if we see ourselves as com you know citizens doing common work. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And uh, you know the, the quote that I use from Adams that I think points to that. Uh, you know, it's, she she understood democracy not as the machinery of government, which I think is what a lot of people sort of default to, but in fact, democracy uh, is a social ethic. Um, and the famous quote that uh, that is in the essay is that, you know, democracy is like a, a road that we travel together. Um, she calls it the thronged road that we travel together, where our kind of minimum expectation is that we will understand the burdens of our fellow travelers. Um, and I just that is for me such a powerful notion, because that that goes to your point that we're we are all citizens on that same road, no matter what our particular roles are. And we have that um, kind of challenge, that charge then to understand the burdens, and I would add the aspirations of our fellow travelers. Um, and I would say that in many ways, again, the kinds of things that philanthropy supports are actually responses to both those burdens and aspirations that people have along the road of democracy. So again, education, healthcare, the environment, the arts, whatever, you, you choose your social services, you choose your particular cause, and it actually reflects something about what the society believes is important. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, 152 years ago, you know, Norwegian Americans founded Augsburg University because they believed that education was critical to their community. And, and you look around every city, every small town, and we see institutions and organizations that have been founded exactly out of that same kind of sense. And and I think the danger that you point to is that when fundraising becomes transactional, becomes more driven by the marketplace, we lose sight of those original um, uh, kind of the, the original missions and, and you know, aspirations and, and responses to human need that was really there uh, in the founding of these organizations. So. You write, all citizens have both needs and something to offer others, Adams argued, and Hull House sought to be an institution in which um, all might both uh, receive and give. You know, Paul, I all of my initial, you know, the first half of my fundraising career, I spent working for parachurch organizations and the idea that the the wealthy are, you know, they're they're blessed with, you know, financial wealth, but they have needs, um, you know, that that. Oftentimes, I think we get sort of tongue tongue tied and we get uncomfortable. And the, you know, the, the, what I what I sort of sense is in a number of my conversations that I've had with fundraisers around the country and and around the globe is the idea. You know, there's this, there's this resentment towards wealth, um, and the idea that we would recognize that some of these most affluent individuals that are perhaps writing us checks have needs is a little unsettling when we're doing the work that we do. Yeah. And it seems like maybe Jane got that. I think she did. She had a very famous essay um, called A Modern Lear, which was her critique of George Pullman, uh, who had uh, founded the Pullman uh, Railway, Railroad Yards um, and basically uh, constructed these um, uh, railroad cars that, you know, like sleeper cars. And uh, his employees started to uh, threaten to go on strike. And he wrote 
basically to them saying, you know, how dare you? I've given you everything, you know. And so, you know, again, this notion that that he, you know, he was like the you know, the person that was saving their lives, as opposed to this notion that um, that they had rights and needs that need, that were not met by the way that they were kind of, you know forced into his his categories and when she wrote that essay it's really interesting because she does critique him i mean she says how you know you're like king lear i mean basically whose daughters didn't love him enough and so you know uh, but at the same time she says you did do some good things here i mean you did create institutions you you put things in place that did help people's lives and so it's always that and that is for me uh, i think the you know the essay is called common work because i actually believe that there are appropriate roles for um for you know Donors for uh, you know, students, for faculty members, for patients. I mean, you know, and and the, the job of the fundraiser, I would argue, is in fact to facilitate the appropriate way in which all those folks are connected, and uh, and that really has become as as this gets translated into practice for me in terms of my own fundraising career and now my leadership of the university. That's really the central concept. So I've taken Adams now and translated her work and her vision into a way of thinking about how is philanthropy common work within my institution or within um, the profession? And how do we think about that work and, and what that actually means for the uh, specific roles that fundraisers play uh, in the work? Yeah. I mean, Paul, you're, you're, you're in the midst of, you, you, you sort of know what the sort of the ongoing critique of philanthropy and we're sitting here having this conversation on election day and there's a lot of sort of, uh, you know, the, the, right in the middle of your essay, you talk about class difference and the idea, the implications of this belief is the mutual dependence of the classes is a critique of the power imbalance that normally ensues when those of wealth deem it uh, appropriate to share their wealth with those in need. And, and, and the argument that you're making here is that, um, is that Adams offered us a way to look at philanthropy in such a way where we can begin to sort of remedy and sort of resolve some of that um, and not have it, you know, when I think of a lot of the critiques that I'm consistently reading about philanthropy and the way that fundraising sort of plays out, a lot of it is, is because the way we do it maintains these class differences and it elevates those, you know, we, we celebrate those who can write the biggest checks and we, um, those who write the smallest checks, we don't. Um, and there's certainly a, a general consensus amongst a lot of us that that's not really the way this is supposed to work. And perhaps Adams, if she was, you know, at the next AFP conference or the next case conference, maybe she'd tell us, uh, you know, maybe if you approach it this way, you might resolve some of that. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I I think that's exactly, uh, you know, what I'm saying. In some ways, the way we've set up our fundraising operations, the way we think about philanthropy in the context of our, our organizations, you know, does lead to the kind of exacerbation, if you will, of, uh, of that power dynamic. Because, you know, we have principal gift programs. We spend all this time, you know, cultivating a very small number of people because we know that that's where, you know, 95% of the you know, donations are going to come from. And we often then forget. Um, and I don't think it's just the donor kind of gap. It's also uh, other people in our organizations. You know, I've uh, argued ever since I, um, you know, was able to get into leadership of uh, both fundraising operations and of universities that, in fact, there's a very appropriate role for for faculty members, for um, for students, um, you know, in the work of philanthropy. And how do I bring them in and show them too? I, I tell a story in the essay, I think, about a faculty member at one of my institutions after I told this story about Jane Adams to, to him, talked about common work. He said, you know, I've I've been a faculty member for 20 years, and I've never thought that I was anything other than what he actually used this language, a leech, a leech on fundraising, right. you know, on philanthropy, rather than somebody who could actually contribute to it. And so 
I spent, uh, you know, at that particular institution's several years and working on trying to draw those faculty members back into the appropriate way that they are connected so that they understood, again, philanthropy, not as something that happened over in the fundraising office, but something that was central to the mission of that organization and to the work that they did every day, uh, the teaching and learning work that they did, the scholarship that they did, the way they supported students. And that's become a Again, a, a kind of lens that I brought to a lot of the specific strategies that we use to try to uh, build this notion of common work uh, into our fundraising operations. So, Paul, as we begin to sort of uh, the later half of this conversation, I, I want to allow you to sort of unravel these. Um, you offered as a conclusion to the essay implications for the uh, for the fundraising profession, three of them very specifically. And I just want to allow you to sort of speak to them. The first one is, is that philanthropic fundraisers must recognize and embrace their public roles. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this goes back to this notion, again, that uh, that if you think that philanthropy is at the core of democracy, then those who are involved in philanthropic work um, as professionals um, actually are public servants. Um, you know, and I think that if you bring that lens, uh, you know, what that actually, I have to tell you, I've, you know, often found um, you know, fundraisers that have been in my workshops and classes and things, when you bring that concept forward, it changes their notion of the work. I mean, it, you know, I talk about the nobility of the work. I mean, if you're a public servant, I mean, there's nobility to that work. It really, it's meaningful work. There's actually advancing important causes, you know, both in the institutions they serve, but also in the broader democracy. So that, that becomes uh, something that I, I want fundraisers, again, not to default back in to that I'm only here to, you know, and do these transactions. I want you to think about your work more generally. And that will, I hope, change both how they do their work within an institution. It also means that they bring their expertise to bear in other settings. Um, so their role in other boards, um, you know, their role uh, in their neighborhood. Um, how are they seeing that work, not just, you know, segregated into the, uh, the economic kind of employment relationship they have, but also into the kind of broader way that they, that they play their work. And, I, you know, I think about, Lawyers, for example, that do pro bono work or doctors that do work that goes beyond the boundaries of the hospital. And I, I, I want the same thing for fundraisers. Yeah. You know, Paul, in the in the in the column here, I had penciled as I was reading this, I, I wrote something a lot trying to read my own handwriting. It's 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 the idea that what you're describing is this public role, because oftentimes when we hear that term, something along the lines of somebody who's in a public role like that, we think of politicians. But I think the role you're describing is a much more complex and messier type of role than even a, a, a politician would be. Am I right? Yeah. It's the work of citizenship, which is very messy work. Democracy is messy. Right. You know, and that's, I mean, again, that kind of ties the concepts back together. And uh, I, I mean, I'd make the same argument to professionals from other areas. So I'm not just picking on fundraisers, but this is the particular implications for this essay. So. Yeah. So the second implication, you say that uh, philanthropic fundraisers must endeavor within their within their organizations to model philanthropy as common work. So this is a modeling. And I think that's oftentimes a, a conversation that we have about, you know, that oftentimes can sort of creep on to just very transactional in of itself. You know, we write checks, we, we, we're generous ourselves, but I think you're, I think you're calling us to something much greater than just writing, you know, checks as well. Yeah. And I think that's really goes again that, you know, it's going to be different in every organization for how you think about this, but I'll give you a quick story. So here at Augsburg, uh, we were uh, raising money to build a science building and it, it was very important to the faculty and students. They really deserved a, a better building. And, and we were trying to find ways to include those faculty and students kind of in the work of cultivating relationships and making the case for this building. And so, uh, but my fundraisers, uh, 
wonderful folks came up with this idea of holding these summits um, where we would invite uh, 75 or 100 potential donors to come for a dinner. Um, and then what they did is they worked with the faculty, students, and staff from the science uh, departments. And they they put together basically a show, if you will. And it was like a talk show. Um, and it was actually scripted by our theater department. Um, and faculty members and staff members and students actually had a role in the show that, that over the course of a 45 minutes told the story of this building and the impact it was going to have on the life uh, of that student or that faculty member uh, in teaching and learning and research and scholarship, whatever it might be. Well, we did eight, nine, ten of these over the course of uh, a year and a half. And we, on average, um, generated a million dollars in support from each of those summits. And I, I look at that, and I say, okay, look at it. We did the right thing. We brought the people who can actually make the best case for this into the room. We connected them with the donors in a way that you know undid some of the you know, power dynamic. And ultimately, we also did well. <laughs> you know, we also raised money. And I, you know, and I, I use examples like that to say this is this is not some naive thing that somehow we got to do. You can actually do well by doing this the right way um, and actually creating that sense of common work. And those faculty members were so proud of themselves, and those students were so excited. And when we opened that building, I mean, the kind of again, the kind of joy that came out of the notion that they had been involved in leading to this success really changed, again, the whole idea of how philanthropy fits in the context of our university, at least, uh, as a result of that that engagement. And the last implication, Paul, that you say, and, and I, and I kind of wonder if, as I read through these three implications of, of Adam's work applied to sort of the aspirations and expectations that fundraisers might have for themselves, I almost wonder if this is the one that has the sort of the the biggest punch and the greatest potential, the idea that fundraisers must seek to illustrate through their individual and corporate activities, a model of professional activity that is publicly accountable. And I, and I wonder if, if you're saying that oftentimes we're oftentimes very much thinking about what our obligations and accountabilities are to the donor and to the institution, right? Or, or even to the beneficiary, right? The person that we're serving, but you're saying publicly accountable. Yeah. Well, I mean that in a whole variety of ways. So I actually wrote another essay called Pursuing Accountability, which is actually a whole um, kind of argument about the fact that we too often wait for accountability to be imposed on us by outside, you know, by, you know, foundations, by government agencies, as opposed to finding ways, uh, because if you are a citizen and you are doing this work, then you actually have an obligation to be accountable to the broader you know community about the work that you're doing and you know that can take lots of concrete forms but you know it, it certainly there are things we do now with annual reports and you know those kinds of things which actually are ways to be publicly accountable for the work we're doing and one of the lessons i learned from adams um you know was that she was not afraid to admit when she screwed up <laughs> and uh, if you read 20 years at hull house her autobiography she talked about a whole variety of things that she tried that didn't work um and then she talks about how they took those lessons learned and went back and kind of redoubled their efforts and you know that for me is a is a part of what public accountability means it means both celebrating success but it also means you know admitting when we've made mistakes or things have not worked and so i i think I would say, again, that's what we owe each other, um, you know, and this notion now that kind of polarization that we have in our society is a result of people not being accountable on, on both ends of the spectrum, I would say, for ways in which they've misbehaved, you know, they've, uh, you know, hurt each other, uh, you know, just all kinds of you know ways in which we see the impact of a lack of that accountability. Um, um, and I think that uh, for me, fundraisers have an opportunity to model a different way of, of uh, you know, pursuing accountability uh, in, 
in their organizations and in the communities they serve. Paul, you conclude with um, the last, you say, uh, how does our deep gladness, how does our deep gladness meet the world's deep needs in the work of citizen and sh- citizenship and philanthropy? Question mark. I believe that, that as we answer that provocative question, why does that seem to be such a provocative question? Yeah. Well, uh, that actually comes out of a, a concept of, the, of this concept of vocation. Um, and I've, one of my other arguments about fundraisers is that, in fact, uh, uh, to be a fundraiser is a form of a calling. Um, and and that calling leads you to that. Uh, this is this famous Be- it's a Beekner, uh, Frederick Beekner quote, uh, that it, it uh, is where your deepest gladness meets the world's deepest needs. That He, he calls that the place of vocation. Uh, now, uh, that can be misused, <laughs> as it has been misused by folks. But, but I still think there's something uh, in, inherent in there about the argument I make that when, that when we get it right, uh, when we understand philanthropy as common work, and we take the kind of lessons that Adam has taught us and bring it to our work, we're actually um, finding a place where um, there's real joy in the work because we have found a place where that, that fit between our own uh, place where we find most meaning and purpose and what the world needs from us, uh, you know, is in fact, uh, there's an intersection there. And, and I think that um, too many fundraisers, I've, and I've had a chance to teach, you know, and um, do workshops and seminars with lots of young fundraisers. And, you know, they go into these places where they're being held accountable to bottom lines and they're not given the kind of support they need. And they go to conferences and it's all about techniques and you know, I mean, all the frustrations that, you know, both you and I probably share about, uh, the fundraising profession, uh, and I want them to find joy in the work. I want them to, you know, to believe that the work is important and it is the work of, you know, advancing democracy in addition to advancing the causes that they serve, and that that's so needed and so um, noble. And I think that really, for me, is the is the point. No, well, Paul. Uh, kudos to you for for writing this, and 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 it's it's certainly been a pleasure to have you here this afternoon to to sort of put um, to add Jane Adams just a, a just a layer of Jane Adams' story to uh, to this library of conversations. Uh, you know, one of the things that I uh, appreciate about the uh, the the book of essays that j- the Good Intentions is that uh, you write along you you bring Jane Adams to our. Um, to our attention and and Amy Cass, the essay right before yours brings the story of Booker T. Washington um, and and his involvement in philanthropy um, at Tuskegee Institute. And so it's it, what I appreciated about the the whole book is a number of these authors were very helpful in my own thinking. Um, it's just some of these conversations are, are conversations that we're just not having in our space. That's right. Um, it was actually a wonderful project. It was a two-year project where we actually met all the authors met together uh, several times over two years. So it's one of those rare opportunities to actually be alongside of your fellow travelers, even in the work of writing uh, essays like this. So yeah, so yeah, and I and I really do. I mean, and I think a number of the authors in here talk about the the you know this was published in two thousand and five, and here we are, um, you know, not quite two decades later. But I think the relevance is perhaps all the more. Uh, it's just a great little. Uh, you know, binded group of essays that are especially relevant right now. So uh, my, 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 my kudos to you, Uh, Paul, if anybody, uh, most of the time, my guest, um, my guest hear more from our listeners than I do. Uh, So I always like to conclude with a, uh, uh, the question of if anybody's interested in continuing this conversation, reaching out to you, how would you like to do that? And, and where might they find you? Yep. Easy to find me. Um, I uh, answer my own email. I'm at uh, augprez, A-U-G-P-R-E-S, 
at Augsburg, which is A-U-G-S-B-U-R-G dot E-D-U. Um, I also publish a bi-monthly um, email newsletter called the Notes for the Reflective Practitioner, which I've been doing. I think I just uh, launched my 24th year of that. And so uh, if folks want to take a look, they can find that actually out on the on the web. If they just uh, uh, Google that, that'll come up. And uh, that's where I capture a lot of my own writing, kind of put it together every other month and uh, share it with folks who I, I believe are trying to do the exact thing that I'm doing, which is to combine reflection and practice actually in a, in a kind of meaningful way. So, um, but I would uh, welcome any comments or any uh, feedback or any opportunities to further engage. Yeah, Paul, that's actually sort of where before I, before I, uh, reached out to you by email. I actually found that uh, that library um, and thought this and figured out that you were college president, that you were familiar with Jane Adams, and that yeah. you were also a fundraiser. So I enjoyed reading some of those um, okay. as well. Paul, Great. it has uh, certainly been a pleasure and you're always welcome back. Thank you so much, Jason. Great to be with you. Take care. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.